Good morning. Our first scripture reading comes from the book of Psalms. It's found on page 618 in your pew Bibles. I'll be reading verse 8. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Our second scripture reading comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2. It can be found on page 1162 in your pew Bibles. I'll be reading from verse 6 through 11. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you speak with clarity. We thank you for your word, God, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to teach, to speak to us as we reflect on this word. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Every day, you and I, we deal with uh, all sorts of annoyances, right? Like marathons that interrupt your morning travel plans, or TTC slowdowns. Nothing worse than that, isn't that? Waiting on the subway platform for a subway car that never comes. Or what about the mystery of missing socks? In our home, we have a pile of socks that have lost their life partner. <laughs> you know that? You toss 20 socks into the dryer and 19 come out. Now, beyond these daily annoyances, you know, everyday grievances, we experience something a little deeper. We experience regrets in life. We experience regret over decisions that we've made or indiscretions in our life. We might regret career paths that we've taken that have left us empty, unfulfilled. We might regret past actions that were so foolish they can still make us blush today as we think about them. We might regret friendships that we never entered into, opportunities that we could have had but we didn't take. And then scratch a little deeper and underneath annoyances and regrets, we find a whole heap of distresses 
that we all carry with us every day, those anxieties, the, sometimes the sense of futilities that plague us. We look in the mirror and we see a thousand different ways we wish our body was different. We face anxiety about friendships, for instance, and belonging, and we wonder, are we ever really going to feel like we fit in somewhere? There's anxieties and distresses about aging. My mother, she just turned 89 this week, and she acutely feels the distresses and the losses about aging, about funerals of way too many friends, about how all conversations seem to end up with some aching body part or some recent doctor's visit. And then more troubling still are the miseries and the tragedies in life, the hurts and agonies of, of fractured relationships that are never going to be repaired, of, of, of our characters that have somehow been misshapen, distorted, and that we're even blind to it of addictions that can just devastate lives and families, of diseases that leech the life from living, of corrupted political leaders who inflict misery upon faraway peoples through winds of decision, or sexual violations that strip dignity and heap shame. And in all these annoyances and distresses and tragedies of life, we know this core conviction. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, this life is not the way it's supposed to be. Suffering, it seems everywhere. It seems unavoidable. Shakespeare got this when he wrote this. Every new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. And that basic human experience leads to one of the most core questions every human being faces. Where is there a remedy to fix this broken world? What can bring healing and, and hope to not only my broken life, but to the sorrows that plague our world? Every faith and philosophy has to answer and provide a meaningful response to that core question. In the Apostles' Creed, this ancient summary of the Christian faith that we are walking through. If you're a guest, a visitor here, we're walking through this Apostles' Creed, taking it piece by piece, trying to understand what this, this important summary of the Christian faith states for us. And it has so far been pretty positive. It has described a loving, mighty Father who has created this big, beautiful, gorgeous world. And into that world, God's Son has entered through the womb of a woman. And so far, there's not been a hint of sorrow or tragedy at all until now, where we confess one word, suffered. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's own Son, suffered. This section of the creed that we're going to discuss and explore today proclaims truth about Jesus and about his life, his ministry, and in so doing, it addresses the most poignant question of trouble and suffering that we all face, which in itself is really good news because we live in a culture that just avoids suffering, like the plague. It, it's almost like allergic to dealing with pain and suffering, um, which only compounds our suffering, doesn't it? Because people then don't know how to deal with our pain or our suffering, and so they avoid us, or they're, they're just silent about it, which just adds loneliness to all the things we suffer. 
People are, in our culture are so taken aback when suffering enters their lives because I think we're somehow convinced that we should be immune to this, that, that this shouldn't happen. But the good comfort of the Christian faith is that we're not surprised by suffering. The biblical writers understood that, that all of us are in some way are wasting away, that we can't avoid pain. And you might think, wow, that's pretty bleak, but hey, it's reality. And the creed spends a really generous amount of space and time outlining that reality and outlining this truth. We follow a suffering Savior. No false hopes, no cliches, no feel-good platitudes, just five blunt verbs. Suffered, crucified, died, buried, descended. Five actions of God. Now, did you notice the tense of these actions, of these verbs? All past tense. The creed uses five past tense verbs and then inserts one historical reference to describe the ministry of Jesus. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. It's amazing, in the simple grammar of the creed, it's speaking good news. It is describing actions of what God has done, past tense, in history. This is Christianity, which it's not a matter of what you do, it is all about what God has done in Jesus Christ. Always and entirely a matter of what God has done for you and I in Jesus Christ. This is absolutely central to the Christian faith. It is probably the distinctive mark about Christianity because every other faith, every other religion is about what you must do to come to God, whether that is become an enlightened person, receiving some knowledge, whether that's adopting or doing a variety of different spiritual practices to come to God's level to meet God, or whether it's becoming a good moral person of stature, all of it is what you do. But look at the grammar of the creed. It is all past tense. It is all actions about what God has done for you. So the, the creed is announcing something has happened in history. And that's why you have this historical character, Pontius Pilate, popping up here. And it's saying, you know what? This is not myth. This is not fantasy or fabrication. It's not abstract philosophy or theory either. Right here at the center of the creed, is history, actions of God in our time and space, which makes Christianity good news, not good advice. It's an announcement that something has happened in history and has changed your and my situation, that we have been saved through the actions the completed work of God in Jesus Christ. It's not advice on what we still need to do. It is the announcement of news that brings about deep transformation in our lives. So what is that news? What has God done? Five verbs. He suffered. As Isaiah 52 tells us, speaking of Jesus prophetically, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. And by his wounds, we are healed. 
And, and the sufferings of God speak a direct response to the question of all our brokenness and human suffering. And it's saying to us, you are not alone in your pain. God is not aloof. He is not distant or uninvolved with your grief and your groans. He has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten you. He is with you. As Psalm 139 says that we read, even if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Christianity gives us a God who suffers. Unlike any other religion, Christianity tells us that the great and sovereign God has come to earth in the person of Jesus and has suffered. He knows pain. He knows rejection. He knows betrayal and torture and hunger and death. So it's amazing, if you read through the Old Testament, you read about God and his character, and one of the, the beautiful things is that God identifies with the suffering. There are these great texts where God says, in a variety of ways, he says, if you oppress the poor, you oppress me. I'm a husband to the widow. I'm a father to the fatherless. It's like God is binding his heart so closely with suffering people that he interprets any move against the suffering, weak, marginalized person as a move against him. But then Christianity goes even further, stating that God didn't just identify with our suffering. In Jesus Christ, God became vulnerable to, he became involved in suffering. And not only suffering, but death. He was crucified, died, and buried. I think it's really difficult for us to, to understand how repulsive and horrific a crucifixion is. We've sort of domesticated the cross. We've got a nice, relatively cleaned up cross here. But it was a sickening form of torture and death. It was, a, it was a death reserved for, for just the lowest. If you're a Roman citizen, you would never be crucified. That is not a form of death open for you. It, it, it was a physically grisly and drawn-out process. Jesus was whipped, beaten. His flesh was like filleted. And it was meant to humiliate, right? The whole point of it was to heap shame, to dehumanize whoever was on that cross. Jesus was mocked. He was spit upon. He was hoisted naked at a public intersection while people jeered and taunted him. But more than the physical pain, more than the, the personal, the social humiliation going on, the greater meaning of, of the cross is found in, in the wider biblical story. Because to be hung on a tree was to be cursed. Deuteronomy 21 notes that he who is hanged is accursed by God. Now again, we, we don't have a real acute sense of curse, right? We might think of black magic, some voodoo, a hex. But a curse in Scripture was the experience of the undoing of God's good creation. Sort of the unraveling, the reversing of everything good. So Adam and Eve, as they experienced the curse of sin and death... Adam and Eve, who are created from dust, experience the curse. They're cursed to die and to return to the dust. It's this reversal of life. Adam and Eve, created to live in communion with God, experience the curse and are cut off and live east of eating, this undoing of communion with God. And so to be cursed is to be 
cut off from the good, to not only see the blessing of it slip away, but then also to see the opposite, the evil, the the darkness coming at you, coming over you. The fullest suffering of the cross was Jesus taking upon himself the curse that should have fallen to us. Galatians says this, Jesus redeemed us from the curse, saved us from the curse, having become a curse for us in order that the blessing might come to us. Jesus was crucified and he died. Death is the curse of sin. The penalty and the curse of sin was transferred from us to Jesus Christ. Jesus was cut off. He was separated from God, which that's the descent into hell. Jesus experienced this God-forsakenness. Jesus, who enjoyed perfect communion with the Father for eternity, lost that profound intimacy. I mean, think of losing a relationship that is so dear, that has nourished your life, that you, you can hardly understand your being, your life without that relationship having that cut off. This is Jesus who enjoyed that relationship with the Father for eternity. Now, on the cross, has the Father turned his face away, which is why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the descent into hell, the absence of God, where where Jesus was cut off from the presence of the Father. Philippians 2, that passage we heard read, chronicles this descent of Jesus who being in very nature God, made himself nothing, who take the very nature of a servant and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. All this he did for you and for your salvation. All this he did for us to save us from the sin that separates from God. All this he did for this entire world and the sin that spoils the entire world. All this he did so that the blessings of God would come to you. You see what the creed is saying? That Jesus is sharing in all that is ours so that we could share in all that is his. Jesus enters into human life into every aspect of human experience. He is fully human, enjoying all the goodnesses and joys of human experience, but also drinking the full cup of human sin and misery down to the dregs. He takes on every aspect of human shame and cruelty and suffering and brokenness. He takes the curse that is ours. He takes on death. He shares in all that is ours so that we might share in all that is his. In Jesus, we find new life. We can live at peace with God, in communion, in renewed relationship. Everything that Jesus had is now ours. We enjoy all the benefits of Jesus. His status as a, <clears throat> as a beloved son, it's yours. His access to the Father, his intimacy with the Father, it's yours. His joy in life in you through the Holy Spirit, it's yours. It's all been done by God, suffered, crucified, died, buried, descended. And that message utterly transformed the world. 
in, in the Roman culture in which it was first proclaimed, the way you would seek a good life was to gather for yourself as much honor and status to increase your reputation, your sense of personal glory. People would pretty proudly lay that all out. To be humble, to, to lower yourself, your status, to serve. Well, that was, that was a bad thing in that culture. In that time, that was unthinkable. That felt like shame. But the followers of Jesus completely contradicted their culture. They held up the cross, which for them was a, was a victory sign. But in their culture, it was, a, it was a symbol of utter shame. And they said, no, no, no. The best thing for us is to give ourselves away, our glory, our privilege, our power to serve others. And that message transformed the world. And we still see it today, don't we? I mean, most people that you talk to, I would imagine that they would say, if you ask them, it's, it's a better thing for you to serve others than to purely live for yourself, right? To live only for your, to improve your rank and your status, to improve your reputation, that's, that's not good. You've got to use that for others. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, how the cross has totally shifted the values of our culture, of our world. That's a gift of, of Christianity, and so that we believe it's a good thing to give ourselves, to play, use our place and power to serve others. But I wonder, how does that sound to people who are already at the bottom? It's one thing, you know, for us in a Western world where we're relatively wealthy, we have power, we have privilege, to be told, you should take a step down. You should lower yourself and become a servant. What about people, however, who are already at the bottom? What about people who have been systematically crushed, pushed down, pushed out into the margins? What does it mean for them to hear this? It almost feels like it's like disempowering, right? And I think a lot of people in our culture assume that. But here is the crazily paradoxical thing. Christianity grew exponentially, explosively among the lowest, among the poor, among the slaves, because they found in Christianity a hope so robust, a meaning like anything, like nothing their Roman culture offered them. Christianity, you see, took their shame, took their vulnerability, took their weakness and ennobled it. All the things that society said made them unworthy, it transformed it. And that same power is available for us. If I know anything about us, about human nature, is we all have hidden shames and we all have vulnerabilities and weakness that we prefer to hide and keep away. But the invitation of Jesus is to bring all that, all that pain and that shame and that vulnerability, all those beliefs that think that you are flawed and unworthy of love and belonging, and let the cross of Christ transform that. Because Jesus took the symbol of shame and weakness, the cross, and Jesus turns it into this victorious symbol of love and suffering and shame and even death are transformed because of it. There's an Egyptian Christian in the fourth century, a man named Athanasius, who talked about the transformation of the cross and what it means for us as Christians. And he says, if you see children playing with a lion, don't you know that the lion must be either dead or completely powerless? 
In the same way, when you see Christian believers playing with death and despising it, there can be no doubt that death has been destroyed by Christ and that its corruption, its suffering, has been dissolved and brought to an end. Christians were able to face death and face suffering in an entirely new way because death had died. And that suffering itself wasn't what people feared it to be. You see this again in the the book of Philippians. Paul, who outlines the descent of Jesus, the humiliation, the suffering of Jesus. And Paul is writing this, do you know where from? A prison where he's locked and bound. And yet Philippians is the most joy-filled, saturated book It is filled with calls to rejoice and be glad. How does this all fit? Because suffering and shame and death have just lost their power through the cross. In the middle of all our human suffering, of all the tragedies and miseries of this world, Christianity, you know, it doesn't offer an answer to all those people who are wrestling with pain and suffering An explanation is never going to take away the sting and disease of death, right? An argument is never going to be a healing balm for a heart that is broken. Christianity offers you something better. It gives us a person. It gives us God doing something about the pain and suffering in the world in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see God doing something about all this pain and misery, putting himself literally on the hook for it. He suffered, he crucified, died, buried, descended. Suffering and death have lost their poisonous sting because of Jesus. In the cross and the resurrection, we see a love that is bigger than our deepest sorrow and that can actually engulf all our pain and sorrow, take it all in to something bigger and grander. The cross and the resurrection of the Jesus from the dead is the strongest medicine for aching, sorrowful souls. And it led the Bible writers to talk about sufferings in this way, as light and momentary. We consider now our sufferings light and momentary. How do you you come to that place? Sufferings are hard. I sort of hesitate to speak about that because I don't want to diminish or cheapen or downplay the reality of our grief and pain, but in the end, the remedy of the cross, the way of hope of the cross and the resurrection, the way it works is it gives you a new vantage point. It gives you a way to see something deeper and greater than any suffering or grief. And from that vantage point, amazingly enough, our troubles, our sufferings can possibly seem light and momentary. Without diminishing the the reality of our suffering one bit, without denying it at all, the gospel just takes up all our pain into a bigger reality that surpasses it all. That reality is the resurrection of Jesus, the certain hope of life together in God's coming kingdom. Jesus' body, think of it, Jesus' body that was bloodied and suffered and pierced, died and buried, that body was resurrected physically restored, made new. It's a sign of what waits for you and for me. And the living hope that you and I have, the reality that gives us strength 
to make it through all the suffering we do face, and it is everywhere, is that God is working out a restoration of all things, of which the resurrection is just the first fruit. The gospel hope of the cross and the resurrection. You know what? It's not a compensation. You know, it doesn't say, oh, when we finally get to heaven, you know what? You get your compensation, your reward for all that's lost. The hope of the cross and the resurrection is that it is a restoration of everything that we have lost and suffered in this world. The bodily death and resurrection of Jesus means that every horrible thing that has happened will become somehow undone and repaired. It makes everything sad, every misery we've experienced, it is going to be brought up into this greater glory of God and it's going to be renewed and restored through the ultimate defeat of suffering and death. Man, that's the strongest remedy for our deepest grief and sorrows, to know that it's not going to have compensation. Oh, yeah, you suffered so much, here you go. No, 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 whatever was lost is going to be restored and remade and renewed. And we know that because Jesus has gone before us into that territory. Jesus takes on the shame, the anguish, the terror of this life, including death, in order to just drain it of its power. The horror of death and suffering is, is emptied of its finality. Because of God's unrelenting love we see in Jesus. Five powerful verbs of what God has done for you. Jesus, this man of sorrows who shared in all that we have so that we might share in all that is his. Friends, if scripture says today if you hear his voice, Don't harden your hearts. Turn to him. And so today, would you receive that good news? That is all you got to do, right? Because it's all been done already. There's nothing for you to do but receive it in faith. So I invite you to turn to Jesus, to enter into communion with the living God through Christ, to know this life, to receive it. You can have this hope. This joy, this peace, it's found in Jesus in his completed work on the cross. Let's pray. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we are profoundly moved by all that you have done for us in the cross. It's finished, God. It is finished, fulfilled, complete. We can lay down all our busy doing because all that's necessary has been done. Jesus, we are sorry for all the things that we have done wrong in our lives, all the ways that we have turned away from you, and all the ways that we have tried to make our faith about what we have to do for you. God, forgive us. And we turn now from everything that is wrong. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for each one of us so that we could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer us forgiveness and the gift of your spirit, and we receive that gift. God, for anyone whose heart is turned, would you please come into their life by your Holy Spirit to be with them forever. 
but we, we are just filled with profound thanks and gratitude. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you did not scorn the shame of the cross, but instead for the joy that was set before you, for the joy of a renewed creation, for the joy of a restored relationship with your people. You endured the cross. What a Savior you are. Amen.